You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Scott Schutten, who is the head of Compassion and Mindfulness Programs at a little firm called LinkedIn, and also the author of The Full Body Yes, Change Your Work and Your World from the Inside Out. Now, Scott, I have to say that sometimes when I refer to you, I refer to you as the chief mindfulness officer <laughs> at LinkedIn. I guess that's not the accurate title, but but it more or less captures what you do at LinkedIn. Is that right? Yeah. First of all, thanks for having me. And yeah, the the appropriate title is the one used, but sometimes we talk about chief mindfulness officer, but sometimes people get sensitive about the word officer. It takes on a different meaning in the corporate world. So. Head of mindfulness and compassion programs. Now, it's interesting. I, I wonder if this is going to be a trend, right? I wonder if, if companies are going to have similar positions su- such as yours. And I think that your role is twofold. I mean, on the one hand, you're involved in kind of internal development of people and helping people to learn new skills and learn how to flourish in different ways. But I think also you play a role in shaping the culture of the organization and how it responds to its customers and its constituents and its, its stakeholders. And you've written articles about compassionate leadership. So maybe we can start with that and, and just sort of say, like, what does it mean to be a compassionate leader? And why is this so important right now? And maybe another question is like, well, why haven't we been talking about this all along? I mean, isn't that something that's intrinsic to leadership? Hasn't it always been something that's intrinsic to leadership? Or is this really a, a new conception of leadership? Well, you'd think so. Wow, so many places to start. Maybe let's start with the history of work, just as a backdrop <laughs> for all of this, right? Just in 90 seconds. So if we think about the history of work, in the agrarian age, we had kings and slaves, right? If you think about the building of the pyramids and for the last X thousands of years up until the industrial age. And in other words, workers were not treated very well. And so managers could basically do whatever they want. It's like, I told you to do it, just do it. And then we moved into the industrial age, the 1800s. And you might imagine a factory filled with workers doing exactly the same thing in a factory. And again, workers were probably not treated very well, were probably seen as replaceable, and therefore managers could also, again, kind of go with this lead by power thing. But in the current age, in the information age, and not all companies have made it all the way to the information age, but a company like LinkedIn, we don't build products, hard products. We don't have hard goods. We're not selling copper or cars. We have people. We're selling information. And so our employees are the most valuable asset that we have. And many companies are getting to this point where their employees are the most valuable assets they have. The other thing that happened, partially due to LinkedIn, is that now these employees have much more power in shaping their own careers. We're changing, literally changing careers three or four or five times during our lifetime. We're changing jobs more than that. And we have the power to just, if we have a good LinkedIn profile and we have a good set of skills, companies recruit us to do different things. So the power is in the hands of the people. Well, that definitely shapes how leaders need to lead. Because now, if you lead by power and say something like, I told you to do it, just do it. Why haven't you done it yet? Those people aren't going to stick around. So that leads us to compassion. I define compassion like this. We can kind of teach to it in three parts. The first part is having an awareness for the other person. 
The second part is having a mindset of kindness towards them or a mindset of wishing the best for them. And then the third part is the courage to take action on their behalf. Now, this works for our employees. It also works for our customers. And we can dissect that a little bit more, but this is kind of the framing that I use of why this is so important. There's a couple of things. I mean, one in the book, you talk about how a compassionate mindset can lead to happiness, right? And so this is sort of an, an appeal to self-interest. The way you reference leadership, it's like, hey, you know, if you want to have a successful company, you, you have to do this, which is also sort of a, an appeal to self-interest. But I think there's also a, a deeper message, which has to do with virtue and a motivation that is aspiring for something that's just more meaningful rather than something that's just about achieving success and having a good business and having happiness. Do you think that you need to use those appeals to happiness and appeals to higher quality business profitability as, as a way of kind of getting attention to get the message through? Or is that, is that an essential part of your message? We talk about it in different ways. Some people are motivated by different things, right? Some people just want to do the right thing. They just want to be a good person. And these practices of self-compassion and compassion for others, this is doing the right thing. And people who practice this just get that knowingness that this Mm -hmm. is the right thing to do. Turns out it's also really good for our business. So if I'm talking to C-suite levels, I give a very compelling case why the ROI on these programs and these practices is extraordinarily high. And even if you aren't interested in being a better person, if you want your business to be better, these are also the right practices. So it kind of depends on the person and the audience. You asked a question before about why haven't we been talking about this all along? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's a great question. And it's unclear to me. I think it's habit over the last 10,000 years of being leaders. But we're starting to see the research bear out that when we move away from power, leading by power into leading with emotional intelligence, moving from thinking about just the me to thinking about the we or the whole, the research bears out that this is actually a way to build a more successful company, Mm. a way to build a more successful team, a way to be more successful as a person. So the time for this is now. I spoke with Barry Schwartz a while back, and he he wrote a book called, you know, Why We Work. And he emphasizes, again, the history of work. And and he says, you know, work used to be something that you had to do. It wasn't something that you associated with fulfillment or gratification or or pleasure or anything. It was just you had to do it in order to obtain the resources to kind of pay for the rest of of your life. And maybe in prior periods, bosses felt that, you know, if work is is unpleasant and there's no way to really, you know, you got to exercise power to kind of compel people. And compassion is just going to impact the bottom line in in a negative way. And so is it just that labor markets are so much more competitive? We need people to be capable of working together. We need people to focus better. Doing the right thing is now all of a sudden profitable in ways that it wasn't before. It certainly helps by the way that work has evolved, right? And so now we're in this place where as we've, I'll use maybe a different language, we've evolved in consciousness <laughs> and our labor markets have changed. The two things have fit together. So now we can actually, by being a good person, I can actually deliver better results for my company and be personally more fulfilled, but also help other people be personally more fulfilled. So it's a little bit of a golden age in work. Mm-hmm. You have an interesting story because you grew up in rural Kansas, right? And ultimately went on to become an engineer. But you describe in the book that you had some early life experiences that made you feel a bit different, a bit out of place, and and that you had these kind of early interests, cravings, discoveries 
that led you to a mindset that's similar to what you have today? And, and you mentioned the full body yes, the experiences that you had. Can you talk a bit about that, those early experiences and how they drew you to your current position? And then talk about like, were these sort of separate domains in your world until you were able to create the current position? Did you have to think of yourself as having separate work and life and, and only recently were able to blend them and combine them? So first of all, let me preface all this by saying everything we do at LinkedIn is completely secular. But I did come at this from a spiritual bent. When I was about 13, I discovered a spiritual practice which was really important to me then and remains important to me now. And I think of it as just as my truth, right? It doesn't have to be anybody else's truth, but it fits me, what I believe in. And that included a contemplative practice. From the outside, it looks like meditation. And I started that when I was 13. Started teaching it in college. It's been a big part of my life ever since, but it was never something I talked about at work. I was covering, right? We talk about this, you know, we have the inside of work life and the outside of work life. And then I got to LinkedIn as a, you mentioned I was an engineer. I, to be clear, I have an engineering degree. I never went into engineering. I went into sales and then into customer service leadership. And so I arrived at LinkedIn 25 years into my career as the VP of Global Customer Operations. Mm -hmm. I was leading essentially all the customer-facing functions that aren't sales. But I quickly realized that LinkedIn was an amazing place. Our CEO at the time, Jeff Wiener, was talking about his own meditation practice using Headspace. And I was thinking, wow, maybe this is a place where I can bring this other part of me. Maybe I can lead a meditation at work. That would be really cool. This is my internal dialogue. It'd be really cool if I could bring that inner and outer part of me together and be a whole person at work. And so I started just by leading one meditation class. It was on a Thursday afternoon at 4.30 in the heavenly conference room, which I thought was very auspicious. And that first time there was one person there. And I'm sure that that guy was just as terrified as I was because I never saw him again. Because look, it took a lot for me to get over myself, to get over my own fear to even do this. I had all this self-doubt, like, what are people going to think of me? Like, is, is this weird? Like, what are people going to say? I'm a leader. Can I even do this here? Does LinkedIn have a policy where people can sort of run classes, organize classes? Is there a system by which you initiate these sorts of things? In this particular case, I had met with my colleague, my friend who ran our wellness group and just asked if there was anything that we could do together. He got really excited. I got really excited. And then I went back to my desk and did nothing about it for three months because I was afraid. But essentially, it was in conjunction with our wellness group at the time. So this became a regular thing. The one person turned into three, turned into five. Then people knew that I did it. I started getting invited to bigger events. Like the CFO would have a summit with three or 400 finance people, and I would kick things off with a meditation. So all of a sudden, my inside person was the same identity as my outside person. And then our CEO, Jeff, gave the commencement address at Wharton three years ago and talked about compassion and leadership. And I was watching all this. I'd, I'd been in my ops role at this point for six years. I'd been volunteering as a mindfulness person for three or four years. And I was thinking, okay, it's time. It's time for me to invest my career, like the center point of my career into this. But it's also time for LinkedIn to invest in this. Because here, our CEO is out in the world talking about compassion, essentially saying that compassion is the most important thing you can do as a person for both work and your personal life. But then what are we going to do for the 16,000 employees of LinkedIn? We just sent them back to their desk with this message. So I made a pitch to him and our head of HR, and we essentially created this role with a bit of a blank piece of paper a few years ago. And it's been very good ever since. 
Well, so I'm familiar as a lot of companies have incorporated meditation into some of their wellness initiatives. And and I think every company is makes it very clear that this is intended to be sort of a, a secular activity. What do we mean by that? Like, why is it so important that we emphasize the secularity of it? I mean, for most of human history, right, religion has been a huge part of people's lives. And, and it certainly is for a lot of people today. But we now have substituted work for religion, right? Work is the religion of the 21st century. So if we're going to make work kind of more religion-like, why is that a problem? How do we understand things as secular versus religious in a world where kind of work is our new religion? It's a great question. My understanding, my own definition is the difference between secular and spiritual, let's say, or religious is one's connection with the divine or whatever word or belief system they want to put on that. The first place I'd start is just we're trying to create environments that have a rich tapestry of belonging and inclusion. If I'm trying to get people to come to this meditation thing and they say, oh, well, I'm Christian or I'm Muslim, like I don't do that, or wherever they come from, I'm atheist, then that's a shame because they're missing out on something that's really interesting. Where if we leave it wide open, that this is for everybody, this is a practice, you can think of it at the corollary as mental exercise versus physical exercise. Just like we provide a gym, we're going to provide these mental exercises and share with everybody the benefits of doing so. It doesn't mean that everybody does it, but at least it's there and it's available. And then within the practice itself, when we do the practice, for sure, there are people who come at it from a spiritual perspective, but the words we're using are very inclusive. And if we're going inward, they themselves can make those connections, whatever their inward practice is, while we're doing the practice. But in the, in the outer, if that's not your belief system, then it's also something that you can do and that still feels good and feels inclusive in a work environment. So I think some of the critics of wellness initiatives at large companies, they say, look, you create this horrible work environment. It's super stressful, right? And it's full of horrible people. And, you know, there's all these crazy demands that are imposed on you and people get burned out. And so we're, we're going to remediate that with a little bit of mindfulness to kind of take the edge off and make it so that people can run back to work. Kind of like Google will give you snacks so that you can just keep working late into the early morning hours without having to go home and, and have a proper meal. I certainly think that's not what you're doing, right? I mean, you're trying to completely change the way people interact with one another and the way in which the work is done. But do you need to have an integration? In other words, are there some companies that will view this as, as a separate thing from the work itself? How important is it that CEOs like Jeff Weiner think about the entire kind of work design process as one that leads to a healthier employee base? Sure. I think overall, it's a balance, right? If everything else you do is terrible and you provide a mindfulness program, well, it's not that it's wasted, but it's certainly not everything you can do. At LinkedIn, we're trying to create an environment where employees can do their best work, where they can be fulfilled, where they can be happy, where they can explore and develop their own growth. And of course, that's good for the company as well. But it's not like we're saying, hey, meditate so you can yeah. you know, deliver more, so you can produce more. So certainly, we talk about two things. We talk about mindfulness and compassion in a very conscious way. Mindfulness is a, a bridge word I use for lots of things, but essentially it's about the development of self, right? But then compassion is how we interact, how we work together. And for me, that's really where the juice is because you can sell products compassionately. You can build products compassionately. You can learn to treat each other and our employees and everyone else compassionately. 
And it's having this a whole system where I develop awareness of myself through mindfulness, but also I develop an awareness of others and that practice of living and working through compassion. Do you think of compassion differently from empathy? Because people talk, of course, about the importance of empathy when it comes to product design and you know other characteristics. But sometimes I think empathy can be used nefariously, right? Like once I understand what makes my customer tick, I know which buttons to push. I know how to get them engaged and addicted or, or whatever. Do you see these as different concepts? I do. The simple definition, it's maybe not 100% accurate, is I think of compassion as empathy plus action. Mm -hmm. But if you go back to my definition of compassion, it's an awareness of others, it's a mindset of wishing the best for them, and the courage to take action. Let's talk about some examples of how we operationalize mm -hmm. compassion. So as an example, our head of sales will stand in front of five or 6,000 salespeople at kickoff and say, look, our job as salespeople is to provide long-term value. So don't sell something our customers don't need at the end of the quarter just so you can hit your quota. To me, that's, that's amazing, right? That is not how I was trained as a 25-year-old salesperson. It happens in product development. So we have product review meetings. It's essentially a product manager is talking about the next rev of their product within LinkedIn. They meet with the product executives to say, here's what we're going to do and here's the results, right? So these happen you know, five, six times a week. And if the meeting starts and the product manager is talking about their new product, hey, we're going to get 13% more engagement, you know, 13% more clicks with these new feature. If they don't answer the following question, it will always be the first question. And that is, okay, great. Well, what's the member experience like? And if, if the answer is, well, hey, did I mention it was 13% more clicks? The meeting just kind of stops. And then it becomes a discussion about our number one value, which is members first. Because at LinkedIn, we know that our business is built on our members. So going back to compassion and awareness of others, in other words, what do our customers really want? A mindset of wishing the best for them. In other words, how can I solve their problem? How can I help them be successful? And then the third one, which is the hard one, which is the courage to take action, right? So sometimes we as a company need to take action on behalf of our customers in a way that's not good for us in the short term. Mm -hmm. Of course, it would be better if we sold a package of services that was worth 10x the price that our customers don't need. Of course, it would be better for us in the short term. But over the long term, that is terrible business, mm -hmm. right? Because the customer is going to realize they don't need it. And over the long term, they're going to go find a different solution. So these are a few ways that we practice compassion and how it's operationalized. And we're not perfect, but this is the intent that's behind what we do. Are there ways that you can kind of compute metrics around, say, being compassionate? And I mean this at a couple different levels, right? So in performance reviews, right? Can you look at individual employees and say, hey, you know, this person is, you know, a four on, on the compassion metric and we need to figure out a way to coach them up. And then on the company level, I work with a lot of pension funds that are interested in ESG metrics and other sorts of things. Could we actually say, hey, this company is more compassionate than the other companies? And if so, right, how do they deal with the trade-offs? So Amazon famously is customer, customer, customer. And some people argue that employees take a backseat to the customers. And if, if that's true, I, I'm not saying that's true, but would you need to have some integration function which would enable you to say, well, compassion, you have to weigh these different stakeholders into your overall compassion metric? Let's break it down between the two things. So you talked about managers. Interestingly enough, I'm working on something exactly like what you just said. So we have this definition of compassion. We've broken it down further into the 
11 or 12 behaviors of a manager or a leader that fall into these three categories. Awareness of others are things like listening, a mindset of kindness, and you can break that into behaviors, or the courage to take action and break that into behaviors. Then imagine you put that in a leadership 360. And so your team, if I'm a leader, my team is then giving me feedback on a scale of whatever, one to 10, how well did I do against these 12 categories? And from that, I can develop a compassion index. Right? You could have the compassion index at the leader level, at the team level, even at the company level, mm-hmm. as described by employees. And then at LinkedIn, ultimately, if I find that I'm light on, say, number three and number seven, wow, there's LinkedIn learning that can help yeah. me boost those skills. I'm actually trying to essentially productize our ability to mm-hmm. shape compassion. So I think that's easier at the individual behavior level. Now, if we start talking about the company level, it gets trickier. But I do think over time, we'd be able to share from LinkedIn data, we'd be able to share, okay, what companies treat their employees compassionately using the data I just mentioned. If we had more data at the global level and probably companies are collecting these, we could get that data from what customers think of the firms they're dealing with. And then truly it's to build a, if we really measuring it, like my belief is that it needs a balance, a balance of all your stakeholders, not just your shareholders. Right. So it's a balance of how you treat employees, how you treat customers, the bottom line, right? You need a good business model. And then the broader environment or the society that we live in. If we had a balance of those things, I do think that over time we could measure and create lists of companies who are doing this well. So you can imagine in a learning and development function, right? Sort of classes in in compassion or a program that one could go through to kind of learn how to become more compassionate. And I think you're very optimistic about people. I think you believe that most people really want to be compassionate. And if they're not, it's only because they're unaware of how to do it or they're, they're lacking some self-knowledge. But aren't there people that are just psychopaths or narcissists? I, I remember I was reading the chapter, whenever we read about love yourself, I always think there's a number of people for whom that's not the problem. Right? That, that might be uh, something you, you want to reverse. How do we identify the kind of people that are going to really respond well to this sort of training? And to what extent is compassion and mindfulness, are they tightly connected or are they severable? You know, you hear about these people who meditate right before they go into battle and cut people's heads off and so forth, right? I mean, I don't know, maybe that's fiction, but is there a necessary connection, do you think, or are these potentially non-overlapping? I think mindfulness and compassion go together. When I say mindfulness, I use it in the broadest sense of the word, of self-awareness. It doesn't have to be meditation, but introspection. You know, people who are introspective, they have some self-awareness, maybe they have a practice. By nature, they have more capacity to then have awareness of others. If someone has self-love versus self-hatred, then they have a more capacity to have a mindset of kindness or love towards others. And if they have the courage to act on their behalf, to take responsibility for their own lives, then of course they have more of a chance to have the capacity to help others. So they are interrelated. And that's certainly the intention of how we're talking about it at LinkedIn. So your other line of questioning was, you know, there are terrible people in the world and amazing people in the world. Here's how I think about this. I was having a conversation with one of my colleagues who's a senior, very senior leader at LinkedIn. And we were talking about the culture because LinkedIn is a very open, amazing place. And it's, it's just different than other places I've been. And I was asking this person what their experience was like at other cultures and if they liked the LinkedIn culture. And they were very reflective. They were very self-aware. They said, you know, I don't like to admit it, but what I'd say is I'm pretty malleable. 
right? This person had worked in a consulting firm, a very kind of hard-nosed consulting firm. And he said he pretty much acted like everybody else did at that consulting Mm -hmm. firm. But given the chance to act in a different way at LinkedIn, he chose to do that. And he liked to do that. And he was able to open up and be so much more of himself and such a better person. This is what I think about creating a company culture. So if you have leaders at the top who create this umbrella of expectation that we're going to operate in a certain way, it allows the rest of us to then go, oh, I can be a good person and I can be successful. Like I don't have to be a jerk to to move up the ladder here. And so the company culture totally shapes the consciousness. And back to one of your earlier points, I think that companies have the opportunity to shape consciousness in a way that religions and governments have been doing for thousands of years. So it's really a beautiful place that is possible. Mm-hmm. Of course, not every company is taking advantage of that, but it's possible. Yeah, and you know, one of the pathology I think that you point out in the book is really this need for people to always be comparing themselves to others and, and how this can have very detrimental effects. But in a way, don't we need a little bit of that in order to create a culture, right? Because part of the way in which we reinforce the culture is we kind of always remind each other, hey, you know, these are the principles, you know, and when you fail to live up to them or you disappoint yourself in a way, right? And, and that sort of is a mechanism to kind of encourage you to move forward. Do we need to have some element of interpersonal comparison And if we do kind of create a compassion metric and we start assigning numbers and saying, you know, you're only a three on the compassion index, is that going to trigger that internal pathology of comparison? Sure. There's a lot we could talk about here in terms of is competition a good thing and when does it become a bad thing? Because I grew up as a very competitive person, right? And business by nature is fairly competitive. And so what's the good and what's the bad? Well, let's start with comparison to others. Comparison to others can be extraordinarily helpful, right? Mm -hmm. If I'm younger in my career and I'm looking up at a leader, I'm going to mimic that leader's behavior if it's someone that I respect or someone who has a job that I want, right? So some amount of comparison to say, oh, wow, this person did really well. I want to find out what they did so I can emulate that. That's helpful. What's not helpful if we spend our entire lives thinking about our own success in comparison to others, especially our peers, right? Oh, Joe started the same day as me, but now he's been promoted two times and I'm in my same job. And I'm defining my happiness as a comparison of me versus others. That's where it gets not helpful. You know, one of the premises in my book is that we've been defining success in the wrong way. We've been defining success from external validation. What do other people think about us? In other words, what's our title? What's the amount of money that we have? What's the amount of status that we have? And some of that is okay, if that's natural to be successful. But the real measuring lens that I think that we should use is our own internal happiness. Are we content? Are we fulfilled? And certainly in business, there's a way to talk about both of these things and have both of them. But we've certainly been overweighted on the comparison and competitive angle. Well, you talk a lot about feedback and how people need to be open to feedback, but also how important it is that you give feedback in a a positive way. And you you recounted two stories, one where you were on the receiving end of some feedback right early in your career, and then another example where you had to provide feedback, and then you realized the parallels between those two situations. Obviously, your internal judge is, is important, but how do you open yourself up so that your internal measure of self is open to modification, that you can learn from others and and help to 
use a better metric when you're understanding yourself? Well, one of the beauties of getting older is that we see all the mistakes and we've been through enough cycles to see what went well and what didn't go well. And as a leader, that's super helpful because then we can help guide people that are younger or have less cycles of experience. In terms of getting feedback, when we are more comfortable in our own skin, we're not so worried about what everybody else says. It's interesting because then it allows us to be more vulnerable. And in that vulnerability, it allows us to take on feedback to say, oh, I can really hear what you're saying without getting so triggered, right? When we're constantly measuring ourselves by what someone says or what the external perception is, then when we get feedback, it has so much deeper consequence to us. But when we ourselves are stable, then we're able to hear it and we're able to grow and we're able to be more self-aware. And that leads to all the good things, personal growth and professional growth, and then also the ability to be a better leader. Right. And then when you're giving feedback to people, how do you make sure that you're listened to and that they can benefit from your feedback and that they don't put in place mechanisms to kind of defend themselves against the feedback? I think a useful place to start is to share our common goal, mm-hmm. right? So look, I'm going to give you feedback and I'm doing this because I want you to be really successful, right? And, and so first I'm going to ask, are you open to that feedback? Right? Because maybe you're having a bad day and it's just you're not in that place. And maybe you're having a good day and you are in that place. But starting from this place of you have told me you want to be better at your job. I want to help you get better at your job. And to do that, I have some things to share. Are you open to hearing that? And this is a much different place to come at versus, hey, I need to tell you the three things you did wrong last week. Because then when I hear that, it just puts my defenses up and I, I'm going to agonize over those three things. Yeah, I mean, you talk about the fight or flight response, right? And how your amygdala, how this gets in the way of so much. It's kind of puzzling, right? Why is it that we allow this fight or flight response to kick in so often? I mean, at the end of the day, when you go to work and you have a meeting and you got to get out and take your kid to baseball practice, whatever, your life is not in danger like at any point during this entire 24-hour cycle. Okay, maybe you know you could be in an accident on the highway or whatever, but Why is it that we go through life in this state of mind as if we are under serious threat? And we forget the night, you always say, like, remember the the 99%, which is the good stuff, and don't emphasize the 1%. Is is this just sort of a, a survival strategy? Is it maladaptive? Is it designed for an environment that's very different from the one that we live in? I think so. I mean, we evolved this way, right? We evolved from the apes that were not the chilled out apes. We evolved from the anxious and nervous apes because they were the ones who noticed everything and stayed alive. And so now our fight or flight system, our amygdalas are always busy looking for danger. And dangers, it's still real, right? If a bus is careening around the corner and we're standing in front of it, that's a real thing. And we need to have fight or flight to be able to move quickly out of the way. But our bodies also get triggered by our kids who are arguing in the next room while we're trying to do a Zoom call. Or they get triggered by an angry customer email or Pretty much everything in our life is a possibility to trigger that same system. So we've evolved this way. And so it's up to us until evolution kind of catches up with that. It's up to us to shift our mindset to realize that our natural instinct is to spend 99% of our brain power, our mind power on the things that might kill us, the things that are dangerous. And I'm not saying we don't pay attention to them, but let's shift our thinking so that we're more balanced we tend to have this negativity bias. I call it pothole management, right? There can be a thousand miles of perfect road and there's one pothole. Okay, where do we spend almost all of our time in our team meetings, right? We're we're talking about the one pothole. How do we fix it? Our team meetings or our relationships or wherever. And it's not that we ignore the pothole. 
It's just that what's the 999 other things that are also true to balance it out? And by doing that, this is true mindfulness, right? Having awareness of the full situation without judgment. And that leads to much better solutions. It leads to our ability to have gratitude for each other. It leads us to our ability to see the things that have gone well and replicate those. We have a workplace environment where people are constantly turning over. I mean, people work for a year, maybe two years in a single place. I mean, you've been at LinkedIn for longer than that, but that's, I think it's some, something that's a little bit unusual. Do you think that that constant churn, that constant movement impedes the, the formation of, of community? Is there a way that mindfulness practices and, and compassion can kind of strengthen those bonds, which would normally be frayed? Is it allow us to achieve a level of intimacy and friendship more quickly than it would take if we were not in this constant churning environment? That's a great point. I do, yes, think that mindfulness and compassion build community because we're increasing our own self-awareness and that allows us to have more capacity to be aware of others. And when we're aware of others, we tend to be closer to them. Right? So there's a, there's a quote by Abraham Lincoln that like, I'll paraphrase for today's language. He basically said, I don't like that guy. I must get to know him better, right? And so when we're constantly in this, if we're in this movement and we're constantly surrounded by new people, and if we're only thinking about ourselves, we're going to be very isolated, right? We're going to be just thinking about our own success. How can I essentially use this environment for my own good? But if we drop into it and we see others as equal, if we see the system as something that we're part of, and we're thinking about how can we improve the system instead of just thinking about ourselves, then we do start to build more of a community. We start to build more of a connection with others. I actually think that's really critical in today's world. We have this pandemic of coronavirus that we're living through, but we also have a pandemic of loneliness. Mm -hmm. We have a pandemic of isolation. We have a pandemic of mental unwellness. A big part of that is a lack of connection. So while mindfulness, compassion is not the panacea for all this, it does help us build those connections with others and to that deepest part of ourselves where we can feel more stable and resilient. Yeah, and I think there's studies that show that people who have friends at work are more likely to not only stay on the job, but more likely to avoid burnout. They become more fulfilled and they enjoy their work more. And so do you think that it's the role of companies to promote friendships, promote connections, to build communities? Is that sort of part of the job? And, and if that's true, is that really part of the job of, say, an HR function? So I, I teach a course on the future of work, and, and I sometimes think of it as an HR course. And I actually had you come in and speak to that class a couple of years ago. And I think it's kind of a misnomer because HR traditionally has been... I don't know, just this cost center. It hasn't really been the place where all of this happens. So is this you know, an HR job or is this really the job of the leadership? Is this part of a, a strategy? Is this really central to the organization? I think it's kind of like saying, is leadership in an HR job? And no, I don't think so. I think HR has a place to play in helping codify the culture and helping codify practices and operationalizing things. But ultimately, it's up to each individual leader to create culture, to create connections. Here's an example of something we do at LinkedIn, which I think builds connectivity. At the beginning of nearly every staff meeting, in other words, a meeting where we already know each other, one of the things we do before just dropping right into business is just a quick go around, whoever wants to share. It's like, hey, what's something you're grateful for today before we get started? Or perhaps what's a personal professional win you'd like to share? What's something you did over the weekend? And in the beginning, this can feel like, wow, are we really going to spend seven minutes of our one hour talking about this? But what we realize is 
this is how you build connection, right? Mm -hmm. This is how you build that sense of connectivity. And so while it may not look like work, it is. Because what it does is, first of all, in that meeting, it moves people from their head to their heart. It moves people from thinking about just themselves to the whole. It allows us to get to know each other. So that when something happens, if we if things start to have a little friction, we're in a much better place to deal with whatever that friction is. And so over the long run, again, it's a short-term versus long-term. Over the long-term, we move so much faster. We move so much quicker because we've spent the time getting to know each other and building connections. So who is responsible for that? It's every single leader at the company. Yeah, and I think there's a study that was, I think it was Atul Gawande who wrote about this with the doctors when they go in for surgery, when all the people at the operating room kind of introduce themselves, the accident rate goes down substantially, right? Because people feel comfortable raising questions and issues with one another at a more one-to-one level. That's right. We're way more open to bringing up the good things and the things that need to be fixed. We're going to have better solutions for everybody. So, you know, when we mentioned that people are constantly switching jobs, I think one of the ways in which you can attract someone to work at a particular place is not just the time they have there is going to be enjoyable and fulfilling, but also people are thinking about what new skill set will they acquire when they are working there that they can take with them. And, and most people think in terms of, I don't know, some new business skill. Normally, people don't think about going to work at a company and then coming away with, say, a new spiritual capacity or an improved character or a more virtuous disposition. Is this something that LinkedIn can use as a competitive advantage in recruiting and say, hey, you know, when you leave this job, you will actually have cultivated this sense of compassion and mindfulness? That is a great question. I don't know how often we do that, but I do think it exists, right? Because of the way we operate, I do think that people come out of it, especially managers, being much, much better managers. Because I I do think it's more challenging to be a compassionate manager than a command and control Mm -hmm. fear-based manager. And because it's required in our environment, you have to learn those skills. And so, of course, you're going to leave being a better leader. What I do know is that this work that we're doing is a talent magnet. I've had several people come up to me who are now LinkedIn employees and they meet me doing a workshop or a program and they're like, I'm at LinkedIn because I saw you speak at blah, blah, blah conference. And I thought, oh my God, if there's a company that has a head of mindfulness, compassion, I want to work there. And so they were drawn to LinkedIn just because we're doing this type of work. So I do think that our culture as a whole for sure is a talent magnet. And even specifically the concept around compassion and mindfulness is a talent magnet. I was thinking, you know, the military, they'll advertise, you know, come here and you'll learn discipline and you know, you'll learn leadership skills and all this other stuff. They're not asking for a lifetime commitment. They're just asking for a deployment or two and then they send you on your way. That's yeah. right. I think something similar. Well, that's a great idea. That was worth the price of admission. Now <laughs> go talk to our head of recruiting and talk about that. But do you think that it's easier? I mean, look, LinkedIn's a company that's very profitable. It's growing like crazy. I mean, it's in the software space. Every employee probably brings in over a million dollars worth of revenue. You know, it's a very lucrative company and it's not faced with enormous competitive pressures. Do you think that it's a lot more difficult when you're dealing with a company that is perhaps in a declining industry, that's fighting for its life, that that has price wars, where there's layoffs and there are people fighting for their jobs? Those seem to be environments where compassion would be even more important but it seems like it would be very difficult to sustain. Just think of it like a relationship. 
if you're with your partner and things are hard, you can't make the bills, one of you just got fired, somebody is sick, you're in the middle of a trauma, is it harder to be nice to each other? Yeah, of course it's harder. Is it needed at that point? <laughs> More so. And you know, organizations are just groups of people. And so when the organization of this group of people is going through something hard, of course it's harder. And especially, you know, all of these things we're talking about, mindfulness and compassion are best in the long term. Right. So if you're facing short-term pressures, right? If you're a company that is under short-term pressure and you just need to hit your number for this quarter, are you going to go out of business? Wow, it's really tempting to do the quote wrong thing, right? To sell something your customers don't need or to, to lie in your marketing or in your sales. And so every company, every person has to decide who they want to be over the long term, right? And if it's worth it to kind of break those boundaries or to break what you know to be right to survive in the same way that as an individual, if you're in a, if you're in a tough place, is it okay to do the wrong thing with your spouse or your partner just to get by? These are very challenging. So of, of course, it's easier at a company that is profitable, that basically has the wind at its back. But these are practices that are good for all of us. Of course. So how do we do, how would you get this into these other companies? You spent time working in Japan, for instance, and Japan is a very different environment. The salarymen, their lives are very different from that of an employee at a place like LinkedIn. I did some work for the HR department of a large European company and escorted them to Silicon Valley. And we showed them all this great stuff that is happening in, in all these companies. And I talked about how important it was to attract and retain the best people and keep people from quitting. And the head of HR for that company said, well, our employees don't quit. They just commit suicide. And I thought, wow, you know, when you're in the Valley, you kind of get insulated and isolated and you forget that the outside world is concerned with things that are very different from the things that, that we are dealing with in our bubble here in Silicon Valley. So it seems like the organizations and the, and the companies that really need compassion the most and really need mindfulness the most are the ones that, that kind of have the least of it. How do you convince senior leaders at these other organizations and these other cultures that this is something worth pursuing? I go back to the history of work, right? If I'm talking to the C-suite, my first question is, do you care about your employees? Where are you in this agrarian, industrial, information age evolution. Because if you don't care about your employees, if they're just replaceable, you can just go get some more, then I'm not going to waste my time, right? There's lots of companies who mm -hmm. care, who I can spend my time on. So it starts there. Then it just goes into this, this further logic plan, right? If they really care about their employees and they want to provide resources so their employees can be at their best. We talk about physical exercise as an example. Okay. Your company has a lot of people. Do you offer a gym? Oh, yeah, we have for a gym. Well, why do you do that? Well, because we want people to be physically healthy because we know that they're at their best. All right, great. Well, the same thing can be said of mindfulness. Just think about it as mental exercise. Because for most companies in the information age, do you need your employees to be able to lift 100 pounds or to be able to run a six-minute mile? Probably not. But do you need them to be emotionally stable? Do you need them to be mentally focused? Absolutely. So it becomes pretty evident within you know three or four minutes of this line of questioning. It's like, oh yeah, this could be really valuable. Now you still might have cultural differences, right? And so this is why it's so important that, that mindfulness specifically, meditation specifically, needs to be secular. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh yeah, well that mindfulness stuff, like that's just for like pick your religion. 
But no, this is the practice that's good for all of us. So that's where I start, just in this basic human, do you care about your employees? And if you do, then it becomes self-evident that these are practices that are going to be valuable for the company and the employees as well. I want to push back towards kind of education, because if you have to wait until you're in the workplace to learn that mental training is important and that compassion is important, that's kind of a problem. I mean, in school, you learn accounting and you learn finance and you learn operations. Maybe you learn how to code. Should this be a part of education, certainly at the, at the business school level or, or earlier? You know, we have initiatives at my business school around mindfulness, but it's, it's really what we call co-curricular or student-led. It's not really an integral part of, of the education. It's like you said, I mean, we have gym membership and we can, you know, yoga classes and it's available to us, but it's not something that we see as a core skill. At what point should we be thinking about making this an integral and formal part of business education, technical education, all aspects of education? I think starting with kindergarten and preschool and then all the way through all levels of education. In fact, not associated with LinkedIn, but Jeff Weiner has a project called the Compassion Project, and it's designed to bring compassion curriculum into grade schools. Their goal is to get it basically into every single grade school and middle school in America first and then the world. And I think that's where it starts, because if you have a way to talk about this in the very beginning, where it's not strange, it's part of the mainstream, it just makes it so much easier for then us to layer on more of the nuance as we get older and things get more complicated. A lot of people argue that the tech sector in general is probably doing a lot to reduce people's mindfulness capabilities and their compassion capabilities. And, and so, you know, one of the reasons why people need it so badly is because the external environment, the economy, the social media and everything else is doing everything to kind of dull those capabilities. How can companies particularly social media companies, avoid exacerbating the need for mindfulness and compassion? How can they behave responsibly and help to ameliorate the problem? If we think about, again, the definition of compassion, awareness of others, mindset of wishing the best for them, courage to take action, that means I'm really trying as a company to meet my customers' needs. And so right now, some companies, their success metrics are how long did the user spend on our site? Well, is that value? Right. So one of the things we're trying to do at LinkedIn is shift our goals from being just self-centered to being we-centered. Mm-hmm. Right. So as an example, a number of years ago, we added jobs. Right. Companies could put their jobs on LinkedIn. And when it was new, we were very proud every time it hit some milestone. Oh, we have 100,000 jobs and now a million jobs. Now, whatever, 5 million jobs on LinkedIn. And at some point, we changed the metric. Because we realized like, well, actually, that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is, did anybody get value out of that? Mm -hmm. So we changed the primary metric to confirmed hires, right? Because that's good for both the company who's paying us to have their job on LinkedIn, Mm -hmm. but it's also good for a member who's trying to find the job. So if companies created metrics that were customer-centric, value-centric, instead of company-only centric, then it would lead to better results. This would be like a dating site that encourages marriages and <laughs> not, not just swiping, right? Exactly. And you're not wrong. I mean, we have some serious challenges ahead of us, right? The way that a lot of these media company works is the success metric is only eyeballs. It's only how much time did they spend? How many users? What's the level of engagement? Because if their only model is advertising, then that's the only part of the business model. 
But if we can come up with other models where we're providing real value to the users, then we'll all be better off. You describe in the book how you took a bunch of personality tests and, and this kind of helped you figure out what kind of person you are. Can you see a day where when we're interviewing people for jobs that we'll be able to kind of dig in and, and see how mindful are they? How compassionate are they? Or at least, you know, how, how capable they are or how much potential is there as these employees become more and more valuable, more and more productive? How do we evaluate that? Are we going to be able to test for that? Or is it just, oh, this person, they spend time at LinkedIn or they spend time at some other entity where it's valued? If you just look at in the last hundred years, how much things have changed, how much data we have about our own selves, like the wearables that we have, it tracks our heart rates and all these other things. Imagine a world where the wearable told you all kinds of things that are now not accessible to us, even with compassion. How much of the time am I tracking eye contact with the person I'm talking to, as an example? Or how many triggering words did I use in my language versus empathetic words did I use in my language? Over time, wow, of course, we'll be able to track so much more of that. Then I don't know about the ethics behind it, but we'll probably have the data and those will be some interesting discussions we'll be having about that over time. So for those of you who are applying for a job at LinkedIn, when you go down for the interview, if you see someone in the hallway who appears to be in need of help, do not step over that person if you want a job at LinkedIn, right? Just be a test. No, we're not doing that test, but that would be interesting, wouldn't it? Right. I think actually the amount of data that we have at our disposal now and the different ways that we can evaluate people, I'm pretty sure that we will figure out ways to identify these attributes. I just hope that if we identify people who don't have these attributes, that we don't give up on them, that we appreciate the fact that we can help people and educate people and give them the tools that they need. And if we have the data, hopefully whoever's in charge is using it for good, right? (laughs) Because like everything else, the more data we have, it can be used for good and for not good. This is why the mindfulness compassion goes together. Because as we practice mindfulness, we essentially rise in consciousness, right? And so then we're more likely to do things for good reasons instead of just for our own selfish reasons. Well, Scott, I really enjoyed talking to you. I can't give away all the secrets of the book. There's some wonderful stories in here, lots of very personal anecdotes. It's a really, I think, deeply personal book, and it really does reveal a lot about yourself and your journey. And I hope that we will see more chief mindfulness officers or chief compassion officers at companies. Although once that proliferates, it'll be a lot more difficult for you to differentiate LinkedIn from these other companies. (laughs) That's just fine. That is just fine. We'll find some new way by then. Okay. So full body. Yes. Check it out. Thanks so much, Scott. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.